Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Ooh, recording live. Recording live from FYP Studios East and West. Transmitted across the internet, this is episode 257 of Registry Matters. How are you people this evening? We are doing lovely. It's a beautiful, balmy 62 degrees outside. Wow. Like, I'm, my head is still spinning because I worked like 100 hours last the week before and still kind of recovering. So, like, it, is it 257? Because I don't remember anything. Like, I edited last 256. I edited blind. I just, like, put stuff together, lined it up, and said go. I didn't listen to it. I have no idea where we are. Is the earth still spinning? Uh, sort of. Okay. Um, hey, so uh, before we get rolling, make sure that you do all the things that you need to do in the YouTube channel and press the likes and the subscribes and notification bells. And then Larry is happy because he can see the count go up by tens and dozens every day. Uh, right? That's right. Every time I see new subscribers, my heart just goes to i mean i don't even want to describe it It just beats so fast very good um then before before i even find out what we're going to be doing tonight you have a funny to share i do i haven't done anything with larry's criminal advice of things to be careful about doing so i want to give some people advice tonight this is pertaining to a federal benefit system called social security disability if you're applying for benefits, it's probably not a good idea to lie, to tell false, make false statements to Social Security. So, for example, if you are telling Social Security that you cannot drive, it might be that you take a look at your driving record and see how much driving you've been doing and how many times you've encountered the police if you can't drive. To take a look and see if you have anything on your record because they will do that. And particularly I if you see. get caught, if you particularly if you get caught driving a box, what do you call the big trucks that you move with? One of those uh, boxy like a U-Haul for moving. Yeah, so a you, cube truck. Get, okay. Yeah. So if you if you claim you can't drive a passenger vehicle, you can't transport yourself <laughs> to work. You might not ought to have a record of driving things like that. And fair enough. If you are sent to a consultative exam because you're evidence that you submit from your own physicians is not convincing enough and you're telling them that you cannot walk without the aid of a walker it's probably not a good idea when you leave the consultative exam to go and have a nice celebration and be walking around as if you don't need a walker because they might just be following you with cameras taking video of all the things you're doing and, so and, and not to like take too long of a detour down this, like the whole idea of social media has made their jobs a lot easier. Oh, it has indeed. But this was more serious because they have this special fraud and in, in integrity unit that they have. And they assign the disability adjudicators look at cases that are iffy and, and a little bit suspicious. And they bring in that team because that's what they were created to do. And they start looking for inconsistencies and then they follow and they monitor if they need to. So, and then the funniest thing of this, this was one person did all these things. She applied to be a representative payee and was approved to be a representative payee for someone who couldn't manage their funds. And then she told 
years later, she told on her application that she's not able to manage her funds, that she can't take care of basic things. And and so they were spotting a somewhat of a discrepancy where she was claiming that she could not manage her affairs, but yet she applied and said she could manage the affairs of another person. Now, even <laughs> you, you have to admit that's funny, right? That's funny. So, all right. All right. Well, so, so, then do uh, me just, a favor. Just, just be, be careful when you're applying for these things. They will put you in prison. Any of those things will put you in prison. Don't do those things. All right. So what are we doing tonight? We've got a lot of questions coming in from the audience. Some of them will be answered and some will be deferred, but we at least want to raise the questions because maybe our vast audience will know answers and we can come back to the audience for information. And uh, so we've got that. And then we've got a main event of a case from California. Thanks to a listener. I forget who sent it, but it's a great case from California regarding civil commitment. We're going to be doing that. And then we've got one article for sure that I want to cover about uh, felon voting restoration. Do we have any guests? Oh, yes, we do. We got a guest from the state of Georgia. We're going to talk about some legislation that's moving in Georgia that may or may not make it to the finish line. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's start things off. Uh, actually, I think um, I'm going to need to bring on an impromptu guest, but I'll read this up. Uh, to, I'll read this to, to see if we can uh, dig something out of your brain. It says, just curious if anyone might know. I'm in the process of gathering information that I can use to compose my letter to the state registry concerning the possibility of my removal based on law. In addition to trying to find out when my actual offense dates were, I'm having a problem locating Maryland code. I guess that would be article 27 subsection 792, but I keep running into this subsection 792 795 repealed by acts 2001 circa 10 subsection one. E I, I don't know what these things are. And then uh, that's dated October 1st, 2001 West annotated code of Maryland article 27 crimes and punishments repeated. My goal at this point is to locate Maryland code article 27 subsection 792. So I can find out what the law was for the registry in 1999 to 2001. If anyone can point me in the right direction or assist me, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks in advance. Either way. Larry, you know all statutes for all states, like right in your brain. What does he do? Well, what we do is we consult with our vast studio audience because as I look at the list, we have a Marylander here. And oh, so we, okay. we bring that person on and we ask them. And this is the reason why you want to be in the studio audience because you might get your moment of fame when you're sitting here listening. We just might put the microphone on and let you speak. So uh, is, is this Brenda on the line? It is. So Hi. Brenda, hey Brenda, how, you haven't been here in a while. I haven't. Well, welcome back. Um, do you have any inside knowledge about this whole Maryland thing? I do, in fact, as this fellow is talking about a major change to the law that happened in 2001. Uh, they kind of shut down Article 27, blah, 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 and changed it over to give it a whole new numbering system, uh, which is why he's not able to find it in the existing code. And uh, the reason, of course, he's doing all this is that we had an ex post facto challenge uh, win 
some years ago and whether he can get off based on that challenge uh, is, is based on when his offense was relative to what the law was at the time of his offense. Does that make sense? So he has to get all these little pieces in place so that he can send that to the registry office and hopefully say, hey, my offense was in 1999 and the law was such and so, so I should be able to get off. Uh, trouble is he can't find that law because it's been repealed with that number on it. Is, it, uh, is this yes. like they changed the highway exit numbers some yeah. 40 years ago? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're it's looking like, at a map that says it's exit 742 and now it's exit 29? Yeah, yeah. I went from exit 742 to exit 29AB. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's exactly like that. So it used to be Article 27 criminal procedure, uh, and now it's 11701, etc. It's got a whole string. So uh, that's what he's trying to deal with. Um, okay. Yeah. The interesting thing was that, that this fellow also reached out uh, to our organization in Maryland. And we, uh, I actually thought the best thing for him to do, because of course you're not going to have that law, the old stuff sitting there right next to the new stuff. I mean, we get confused enough. Our eyes cross enough already when we go and look at, you know, laws. Um, it gets very confusing. So obviously they're going to get it as far away as possible, but it's in the history. So I said, go to a law library. And law librarians will have the old copies of the history. He can go look it up, see what it was at the time of his offense, jot it down, and he'll have the information that he needs. And uh, he, had, he, had, he made an appointment with a local law library. And I haven't heard back from him, but uh, hopefully that the librarian was able to find that particular uh, bit of code. So he reached out across a whole bunch of different channels, which would be casting a wide net, hoping to get as much feedback as possible. I got that off of the Narsal Connections site. Yeah, he went to he went to the Connections site. Uh, he he sent, you know, he contacted us at Fair in in Maryland. So uh, yeah, definitely reached out couple, three different places. So. Got it. Do you have anything to add to that, uh, Larry? I think she's done a fine job, better than I could have done. Fantastic. Well, I, thank you, Larry. Well, thanks, Brenda. I appreciate you uh, stopping by. You're welcome. Thanks. Talk to you soon. All right. Well, then uh, we'll move right along. Then this one came from Discord, and I think you have a very, very insightful answer for this one, Larry. So uh it reads, so the human trafficking bill Larry has worked on to kill for the last five years has come back. Oh, I remember who wrote this. But this time, they want to expand the list of indeterminate probation to include more offenses. The part that I don't know is possible is that they are including offenses for which the basic sentence is not at least five years. Our indeterminate probation is five to 20, and every offense that qualifies currently has a basic sentence of at least six years. So he asks me, this might be something to ask Larry about. Can a sentence's minimum probation term exceed its basic sentence? Please, can you like spin that so that I can understand the words? Uh, not really. What he's, what he's asking, as I understand it, is can the, can the uh, probation sentence exceed the, uh, uh, the sentence of the underlying offense? And the answer is, as the case law currently stands in New Mexico, yes. 
because probation is rehabilitative. <laughs> so they they can give you they can give you a sentence of probation that's like for example let me make it simple misdemeanor carries a sentence of five of one year okay they can sentence you they can defer imposing any prison sentences most misdemeanors seldom result in a prison sentence but they can put you on a period of probation longer than than that they can put you on a period of probation of up to five years for a misdemeanor even though the the uh, sentence itself uh, if they were to incarcerate, you could only be one year maximum. But but probation is a diversion from prison, so it's intended to rehabilitate and hip you, as they say in the South. And therefore, sometimes you need more time to receive that help so the sentence can exceed the, the maximum if it's probated, yes. All right. So th- d- did that spin answer the question? I hope so, but we are <laughs> looking at that. We are looking at that because people are ending ending up on parole, not probation, but they're ended on ending on parole, which really shouldn't have been called parole because it's not really parole as we know it. But people are ending up spending much more time in the criminal justice system than what the original offense carried because of the indeterminate amount of time they're piling on them after they have served their sentence. So we are looking at litigation, and I'm trying to drum up some litigation. In fact. It's at the top of our agenda of things to litigate is the term is the system we refer to as parole, which is nothing more than an extension of prison. Gotcha. Okay. Well then let's uh, move along. Cause we got a crap ton to cover. Um, I did not record who or where this came from. So I, I apologize for that, but it says, I have a question for you people. I know neither of you are lawyers. So in your legal, non-legal opinion, could you possibly give me your take on if I'd be able to still attend this place as it's in Hernando County. My son and I regularly do day trips. It is considered a state park. I pay for annual passes to the land. Does this ordinance prohibit me from using that park? I have registered motorcycles and everything's legal. I'm not going to be camping or staying. It's just a day trip. I'm not sure if this ordinance would make it illegal for me to go there. I know I currently have no residence restrictions. Uh, I know that this ordinance is very new. It has a few other areas it covers, like residency restrictions and Halloween signs. Again, I have no residency restrictions because of the age of my conviction. However, I don't know if the county ordinance supersedes the state's requirements. Any input would be awesome. And as always, FYP. And I do remember who sent this, and it's in Florida, Larry. Yes, I did read that ordinance it's it's still in proposed it's still i don't think it's been adopted yet i didn't do that research but i think it's a proposed ordinance but the quali- qualification is already there that if this is non-legal it would be of my opinion that it actually does apply and it it doesn't really supersede it runs parallel to the state law if it's adopted they're piggybacking off the state law so they're they're defining everything the same way the state law does in the ordinance and they're just simply expanding and, and piggybacking on the state law. I normally don't get overly paranoid. If I were in this situation, I would be somewhat hesitant to go to to any place because it looks like this ordinance covers. Now, the good side is it's it's only uh, an ordinance, and ordinances are not the same as felonies. You don't have the long prison tail looking. You know, you're looking at 90 days, six months in county jail, but nobody wants to even do that. Sure. You know, you're not looking at extremely long periods of incarceration, but 
it would be my non-legal opinion that they have crafted this fairly well, and it looks like it would run right in parallel in tandem with the state statute. And uh, I would be hesitant to tell anyone to blow it off because you might find yourself cooling in the county jail or city jail if they have a city lockup. Most times municipalities contract with the county where the municipality is located rather than operating their own lockup. But you're going to end up in a local jail potentially, and I don't think you'd want that. And, and I mean, this is Florida further, further, further putting the screws to people who just want to function. And he's just trying to go, trying to go trail ride with his kid on some motorcycles and whatnot. Just go, you know, just cut loose. Well, now you've got to remember, Andy, Governor DeSantis is our savior. (laughs) Yes, I've heard this. Yes. So he's going to straighten everything out. So you just, what I would do is reach out to the governor's office and being that he's such a kind, compassionate soul, I'm sure that he would lean on his office, would lean on the people in that county and they would back off. And, And again, this is only in that county. Perhaps he could get day passes to a park, whatever, a trail thing in another county and everything's hunky-dory there? Well, then he would be under the state law only, and I don't think there is such a prohibition. But again, I didn't do a lot of research. I read okay, the, that's cool. the proposed ordinance, and it looks like that that I would be scared if I were there. And I'm normally, I'm not as hesitant, but on this one, I think that consulting with a legal professional would be wise if this is adopted by the local government and becomes operational. That sucks. All right. Well, I'm, I'm sorry for the bad news there, my friend. Uh, we'll move right along then. Another question. It says, in July, I reached out to you people about a question I had regarding the way that Nevada did their tiering. I ended up taking a plea deal that should have removed, uh, should have moved my level from three to two. However, after serving jail time as a condition of probation, I was tiered as a, as a three, regardless of what the conviction was. I'm looking to see if you guys have anyone who I can reach out to for any information that might be helpful to me for me to resolve this. I can give you more information as you need and would really appreciate the help. I am subscribing to you guys on Patreon and I appreciate all that you do for us. FYP. Yeah, unfortunately, we may need to come back to this because for the life of me, I don't understand how you're a level three. That would suggest that you're already on the list, right? He said, I should have been moved. He did a plea. And he should have been moved from a level three to a level two. So I'm reading between the lines. I'm already on the registry and I do a plea and I would go down to a lower (laughs) level. Can you explain to me how you would, generally you don't drop to a lower level after you plead to a new offense. If you've already previously had an offense. I'm inclined to agree with you there. So, so I'm a little confused about that. So we might ought to bring this one back for clarification in a future episode. But I Very don't well. have anybody top of my head. Although we do those conferences in Vegas, and the locals do turn out several attorneys there. So I should be able to dig through our vast archives at Narsal and find some attorneys in the state of Nevada. Okay. Very good. Um, well, I'm going to press some whiz bang buttons to try and reconfigure things because we have a guest coming on. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself, sir? Who Hi, are you? <laughs> my name is Brandon and I'm a member of Restore Georgia, which is a nonprofit organization that it's pretty much dedicates itself to serving as a collective voice for those impacted by sex offense laws in the state of Georgia. We are the 
state affiliate for Narsol for Georgia. All right. And uh, you want to talk about something House Bill 188. Do you want to give me some background on what's going on? Yeah. So back in 2019, oh, up until 2019, a, a, an offender, a PFR that was, uh, so, okay, let me back up. Georgia uses a three-tier level, three-level risk-based classification system that used to determine the likelihood that a sexual, that a PFR will engage in another crime against a victim who is a minor or a dangerous sexual offense. So this classification is done by the Sexual Offender Registration Review Board, uh, commonly referred to as SORB. So in 2003, Joseph Park was convicted of 10 PFR-type offenses, where he was sentenced to 12 years of prison, due eight. Uh, upon his release in 2011, SORB classified him, him as a sexually dangerous predator, which is a level three. And that required him to wear an ankle monitor for the rest of his life. So after he finished his sentence in 2016, he was he was arrested and and indicted for tampering with his ankle monitor. But he argued that his uh, he he could not be prosecuted for this because the state the statute violated his Fourth Amendment rights. So in 2019, the uh, Georgia Supreme Court agreed with Park and ruled that electronic monitoring of someone after your completion of their sentence was unconstitutional. And that brings us to a bill going through the legislature currently, yeah, correct? That is correct. So for the fourth time, a, a representative out of St. Mary's, Georgia, which is down in the south near Savannah, he introduced the Georgia Dangerous Sexual so the Georgia Dangerous Sexual Predator Prevention Act, which intends to impose life sentences, which is either prison time, probation, or a combination of both. Uh, for people who are convicted of a second time of 13 felony PFR-type offenses. So part of that sentence would re also require PFRs to wear GPS monitoring for life after the release from prison. Good grief. So what we're, we're having problems with the bill is the bill has passed the in previous the last three times the bill previously passed the House and but it ended up dying in the Senate. So th this time, they, I feel like they kind of use a little bit of cloak and dagger tactics to get out of committee. So about two Wednesdays ago, on the 20, Wednesday the 22nd, uh, this, the bill was brought up on the agenda in the subcommittee hearing. But we were all told that a, diff a quote, different version would be coming out soon. So any of the witnesses were able to comment on the current version and not the new version that was going to be posted, the amended version. So then last Wednesday... On March 1st, the bill was brought up in the late hours of the full committee hearing. Uh, and when we're talking about, like, it happened at about 6.45, 7 o'clock local here in, in Atlanta. And the bill was not printed on the agenda for that day. But it was it could have been considered under the additional bills to be determined. So during that session, the sponsor gave a couple of minute discussion, stating that the substitute bill was being released, and that included additional provisions. And some of those provisions, including... Included one that if you weren't leveled by the the board or SORB, you'd be required to be electronically monitored until your classification was given. So in some instances, we're seeing offenders not who haven't been leveled in about five to ten years. Yeah, that, I was one of them. Yep, that backlog is approximately eleven thousand deep right now. So another thing we have an issue with, like the representative who sponsored the bill is using a 2021 murder of a, one of our, one of the uh, 
He used a 2021 murder of the Atlanta bartender that was allegedly committed by a PFR on probation who was not leveled by SORB. However, like, the case has not yet been adjudicated. So, And we're talking 18 months later since the crime was committed. There's no been no conviction for that. So th- the representatives using like the using the the murder to push this bill through. So kind of questions we have is um, how 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 did this bill get sneaked through without any of us to have any comments or saying on this? Definitely for you, Larry. <laughs> well, now. I wasn't there, and I haven't been in the Georgia Assembly for decades, so I'm sure things have changed. But you're going to have a hard time getting me to consider anything snuck through because it's just that it's the way the system works with the hundreds and hundreds of bills that they have. And I don't know what caused there to be a substitute bill, but... Usually that happens when problems have been identified in initial vetting. And I gave in pre-show a bill that I wrote here in New Mexico to change a public assistance benefit level. And based on the feedback we got from the Department of Human Services and from the uh, 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 one of the co-sponsors, I wrote a substitute bill. So when it comes to its first committee, the public notice had the original bill. The substitute had never been published anywhere yet because it was just being finished up that day and the substitute was what was presented so everybody in the committee room there was no one in the committee room except for me as the expert witness but everyone in the committee room had they been prepared to testify they would have had to shift gears very quick quickly that's just the reality of the situation otherwise we would have had to have rolled it over to another day and precious time would have been lost and a good piece of legislation would have died and it ultimately died anyway the next committee but that's just the, that's just the way it works so i would guess that the substitute came about because of some changes now if the substitute is exactly identical and no changes then that's a theory that would not hold up but i suspect changes were made because of some concerns that were raised i know mark urachek was saying that he was going to raise some issues in terms of that particular bill we spoke a couple of weeks ago and he was aware of it but on that though, Larry, with them doing some kind of substitution, doesn't that make it harder for the constituents to be able to review it and oppose or support the additional the the changes and the amendments and stuff? It does. If you're if you look at a totally different bill from what you had seen when you came in with your testimony prepared, it would definitely present a challenge for you. Absolutely. But the alternative is that we would have to reschedule the bill, and you would be told to go home. Appreciate you making the trip to Atlanta. I know you drove up here from Valdosta, but get over it. We're going to schedule this again at a future date, and then it may die because the clock runs out. Which in this particular case, I think we'd be happy with that. That is, and, and, and the, the side of the issue on this year on, yes, there'd be other issues where you not, would not be happy that that's happening if you're in totally. support of a piece of legislation. All right, continue on, sir. Yeah, that brings up another point. Our crossover day is coming up on Monday the 6th, in which this bill could end either die in the House or end up in the Senate. So what can we do other than just have to wait for the Senate? Well, don't give up on crossover. I understand we don't have that term, but I'm familiar with the states that do. 
it needs to have gotten its due pass recommendation out of whatever committee it was in. It needs to be reported out to the floor, and it needs to be voted on by the floor. And I don't know if Georgia Assembly ran through the weekend, you know, if they held if they held sessions over the weekend. But a lot of things they're trying to, when you have that system, you're trying to push things through by the end of that day so that they are eligible to move over to the other side of the rotunda. It could be that it never makes it through because of the tight, compact system of on, on the 6th if it doesn't cross over. But just be aware, that doesn't mean it's dead just because it doesn't cross over. Do you want to go into what can happen if it doesn't cross over, how it can still uh, go over to the other side? Or do you want to expand yeah. the discussion to that? Okay, so if this totally. bill doesn't if this bill doesn't cross over uh, to the other side, it can be it can be added as an amendment to a bill that's already on the other side, that's already crossed over. So there's a hypothetically there's a bill that does something similar. I don't know what it is, but if there's something similar where you're not where you're not mixing and matching legislation, but if there's a, something that's dealing with an area related to PFR stuff that's already on the other side, or something criminal justice may be a little bit broader, but you could take this and you could add it as an amendment, and it's it's just as good as gold. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the same as if it had crossed over. So people, their heart starts palpitating on that crossover system. They think that they've won the game. Now they have. They've won a game if something doesn't cross over because it, it adds a new challenge and a new dimension, but it doesn't foreclose the possibility that this could be put on as an amendment and it's a piece of legislation that's already crossed, crossed over. It can be amended in the committee that that legislation that's already crossed over in, or it can be even added as a floor amendment. It could be added in the Senate. So this is a House bill, correct? That is correct. It could be added as a as a committee amendment in the one of the Senate committees where the where another bill's already there. It could be added as a floor amendment. They could have something that's already been through the committee process. And if they feel strongly enough, they could add this as a Senate floor amendment. So don't consider the fat lady has not sung until that gavel goes down on the close of the session. All right. Do you have anything else that you wanted to ask, uh, Brandon? I think we're good. There's, I mean, there's parts of the bill that we don't like, especially the terms using shall versus may. But that's that could be that's a long discussion we could have for hours. Um, <laughs> uh, and there's there are ter- like using the the representative using like the family's trauma to push the bill is another concern of ours because eventually, if if that case does not get if, if the defendant is found not guilty, how do, that could essentially kill a bill too. So I understand this could be a just a wait and see kind of situation. Isn't that how it, almost all of this stuff happens? I mean, you've got the Patriot Act and all that stuff. That's all knee-jerk rea- uh, legislation. Go ahead, Larry. If you are trying to run strategy in the Senate, I always revert back to Georgia's under Republican control. You have to formulate arguments that theoretically appeal to Republicans. The Democrat Party cannot kill this bill in Georgia. So therefore, you're kind of wasting your time if you spend a lot of time in the offices of the Democrats because they really can't do anything to help you. So you've got to formulate arguments and you've got to hold the Republicans to be intellectually honest. And some of the arguments you would use on this would be the enormous hidden cost of this. You've already identified the removing judicial discretion. 
and they claim they're all about judicial discretion. You know, they, they believe that the judges should until they don't believe it any longer. But you get onto the, the, the cost of this. Uh, you're you're going to have people under supervision or in prison for a very, very long time. And it's difficult to quantify those costs because we don't exactly know how long people are going to live. We don't know the age brackets they're going to pick up their second offense. So these things are very difficult to quantify. But we can safely say that a state is, that's already in the top five or six in its rate of incarceration, it is going to continue to be high in that level of incarceration an enormous fiscal cost to the state of Georgia. And try to keep them honest because they will try to wiggle and squirm and they'll say, well, when it comes to public safety, we can't let cost be a factor. And you have to say, well, you know, I've always admired your throughout your political career that you've stood for fiscal responsibility and scrutinizing carefully all expenditures of public funds. Now, we can't deviate from that now. That's, that's important that we stick with fiscal responsibility. And the citizens of Georgia, we're already we're already incarcerating at higher the rates than the entire country. Bark, I think you're like say you're five or six. There's only four or five states that are incarcerating a higher ratio of their population than we are here in Georgia. Our corrections department is already costing us a fortune. And so, those are the best arguments. They don't care about the constitutional rights of the PFR. Yeah, they they pay lip service to that, but. The strongest argument you have is cost. You know, this is, has a huge unidentifiable cost, and it's going to only grow as time goes along. Because if they're honest for life, whether it be prison or a type of supervision, all these things have cost. Well, very good, uh, Brandon. How can people find Restore Georgia if they want to reach out to you? Uh, you can check us out on our website at www.restore-georgia.org. Or you can email us at info at restore-georgia.org. So there's a dash between the word restore and Georgia. Very good. Appreciate that very much. And thank you for coming by and doing all that on short notice. That was thank great. you, gentlemen. You did awesome. Appreciate it. It was very short notice indeed, like maybe a few hours. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app. Hit the subscribe button and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there, too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. Almost, almost a little bit longer than a few hours, but close, 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 close. Let me uh, get that back, get that going. Oh, my screens work. Yay, my screens work. Hooray. All right. Uh, so, Larry, you people wanted to talk about this case from the California Court of Appeals, which was sent to us by a listener. And you said it is funny. And I've read it. I read it all day today. Instead of doing the things that I wanted to do, I read your stuff. Um, and it's not funny. Anyway, the name of the case is the People versus the Superior Court of Santa Cruz County. Tell me what this is about. 
Well, the Santa Cruz County District Attorney petitioned for a writ of mandate directing the Superior Court, that's why they're named, to vacate its order conditionally releasing Michael Thomas Cheek. Cheek had been designated a sexually violent predator. The district attorney successfully argued that the order is contrary to law because Cheek has a history of sexual conduct with children and he would be placed within a quarter mile of a school, which is prohibited by California law. And the Superior Court found the statute would not prohibit the proposed placement because the school in question is a private homeschool that did not exist until after the community was notified of Cheek's pending release, suggesting the school was created for the very purpose of preventing his placement in that area. Seems to me that the trial judge got it right. Can you admit that the school was created just for the sole purpose of prohibiting Cheek from living there? Yes, I can. I can admit that. But unfortunately, the inquiry does not end there. According to the court, quote, the statute prohibiting placement of certain sexual sexually violent predators near a school does not require the school to have been operating for any particular time, nor does the statute contain any language preventing its application to schools operating in a home. Okay, so for real, you are hopeless. There has to be, Larry, there legit has to be some kind of provision because then everyone would go establish a school. Oh, there's a PFR moving in here. Nope, we're going to make a school. So it's clear that the parents created the school to prevent Cheek from living there. The judge did the right thing and ruled in favor of Cheek, and now the Court of Appeals has overturned the trial judge based on their interpretation of the statute. Would you mind if we would dig into a bit of Cheek's background? What was his original crime, and how did he end up to be an SVP? Well, uh, Cheek was convicted of kidnapping, rape, and forcible oral copulation in 1980. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but soon escaped and committed another rape in 1981. The victim of that case was 15 years old. He was sentenced to an additional 11 years and four months. When Cheek's prison term neared its end, the Santa Cruz District Attorney successfully petitioned to have him declared a sexually violent predator. That's what happened. This was like, um, my math isn't great, 40-ish years ago? He's got to be he like does he never mind i'm not even going to say that he's got to be old almost as old as you at this point uh well he is probably older than dirt but he's not as old as me but yes he is older than dirt and the svp act allows for involuntary commitment of certain convicted offenders and a person convicted of a sexually violent offense is subject to involuntary commitment after release from prison if a diagnosed mental order makes it likely the person will continue to engage in those kinds of activity, kind of like criminal behavior. And according to the court, the law's primary purpose is to protect the public. Its secondary objective is to provide treatment for the offender's mental health disorder. So was he in the process of being released when the snafu arose? Uh, Yes, the community had been notified that he would be joining them. But under SVPA, under California Sexually Violent, whatever it is, act, once it's determined that a person is no longer meets the definition of an SVP, he or she must be released. Alternatively, if an offender remains an SVP but can be treated in a less restrictive setting and the public can be adequately, adequately protected by conditions allowing for close supervision, the offender can be conditionally released to the community under the 
supervision of the Department of State Hospitals. So they, they were in the process of executing that provision of conditionally releasing him, and they had notified the community. So he spent 30 years in prison. Is that, am I doing, he spent like the first 20 and then did an additional 11? Is that, am I doing that right in my head? Well, whatever good time he got, but yes, he, he, he extinguished a 30 year sentence. Yes. He can't be in that good of health for being in prison for 30 years. Cause this is the place where they're hunting for socks because the place is too crowded and people have their socks stolen. Like this is not a well-maintained kind of institution. So anywho, in 2019, the Department of State Hospitals deemed Cheek an appropriate candidate for conditional release. The Superior Court found Cheek would not endanger the community and could be adequately supervised in a less restrictive setting, making him eligible for conditional release. And the court determined Santa Cruz County to be Cheek's county of domicile, meaning he should be placed there absent extraordinary circumstances. After receiving the recommendation for Cheek's placement at the Santa Cruz County site, the Superior Court ordered in July of 2021 that the state, the Department of State Hospitals notify the surrounding community of the pending release decision as required by statute. This is where the problem begins. Larry, you're up. Yep, correct. The notice prompted a significant community response with hundreds of residents sending letters to the court urging against the placement. State and local legislators also sent correspondents warning that placing Cheek there would endanger the community. Now remember, 40 plus years ago, specific con concerns included that the remote site has no cellular service and has, and has a lengthy law enforcement response time. It's close to hiking trails and it's near a bus stop used by children to get on to go to school. So the district attorney argued Cheek cannot be housed at the proposed site because a SVP who has a history of improper conduct with the, the youngins cannot be placed within one quarter mile of a school. The opinion acknowledges that the Superior Court accepted that there is a school within a quarter mile of the site. How did the proposed release go forward? Uh, the trial judge found, quote, the statutory restriction inapplicable because the school was established only after the community was notified of Cheek's proposed release, explaining, again, quoting, I will find that section 6608.5 subdivision F2 does not apply here, but I do not believe that creating a school after the date of notice is grounds for finding a placement comes within subdivision F2 limitations. I think there's a legal issue here, and I think that the date of the court's order requiring notice of placement is the last possible, latest possible date for determining whether the school is planned uh, in existence. Now, this was on page four and five of the opinion. That was quoting from the court. So the judge found that this was all a charade, but that didn't end it there. <laughs> but in, in my opinion, the judge is correct. Why can't you admit that? Well, I can't admit that. Morally, he's correct. But the question is not whether he's morally correct, but whether he's legally correct. And he's not, according to the California Court of Appeals. At the district attorney's request, the Superior Court temporarily stayed its order to allow for appellate review. The district attorney petitioned for a writ of mandate and asked for a further stay to allow consideration of the issues. They began by stating the decision about where to place an SVP is a is a difficult one that requires balancing many interests 
the Superior Court must implement the legislature's directive that qualifying SVP receive outpatient treatment in a less restrictive setting. At the same time, it must protect the community and mitigate any risks to public safety as much as possible. The trial judge did that or did he not? Well, yes, uh, he, he did, in our opinion, but not according to the court's opinion. The court ascertains and declares what, uh, uh, well, let me back up here. The court ascertains and declares what is in the statute. It does not omit what has been inserted or insert what has been omitted. And they cited a case called Ruddick versus the Board of, Ed, uh, Board of Optometry and noted we closely adhere to that rule because it's of importance to our system of government. So they're relying on existing case law that they cannot insert what's not there or omit what's there. And I mean, they're interpreting the statute. That sounds like um, textualism to me, though, doesn't it? It does. Yes. Okay. So then um, it looks like on page six, they stated and quote, the elected members of the legislature write the laws, not the courts. To maintain, maintain that separation, courts must not write laws under the guise of interpreting them. Uh, they went on with, it is well established that it is not the proper function of the courts to supply legislative omissions from a statute in an attempt to make it conform to a presumed intention of the legislature not expressed in the statutory language. That is correct. And the issue here, according to the court, is section 6608.5 subdivision F. The statute provides that any SVP eligible for conditional release who has a history of improper conduct with children shall not be placed within one quarter mile of any public or private school providing instruction in kindergarten or any of the grades 1 through 12 inclusive. The court stated additionally, quote, we see nothing in that language that can be construed to require that the school be planned or in existence before notice of the offender's placement. The legislature could have proscribed that a school exists at the time that notice of placement was given to the community, but it did not. They go on to say, we have no authority to insert that requirement ourselves. This is straightforward textual interpretation. Can you admit that? No legislating from the bench is what people claim they want from their judges. I hear that all the time, Larry. I just want them to interpret the law. And so <laughs> that's what we have here. So I do see that. And they said, imposing a specific requirement not found in the text goes beyond interpreting the statute. It would amount to rewriting it, which we cannot do. Now you see why I said this is funny. Not funny. What is funny to you? I'm not sh well. So, I this this just is one of those things that's not funny. There. So, well, are you a textualist? Or are you for purposivism in your judges? Which are you? Because I've been hearing for the whole five years plus we've been doing this podcast, most of our supporters are textualists. What? Which are you? Are you purpose driven? Are you? What? Well, play that little clip there. Let's see how to pronounce that from Senator Kennedy. You you want you want this one, huh? I can probably stop it right there. Yep. <laughs> per purposivism. Um, so it's, I, my answer, Larry, is that the answer is yes. I want them when it works for me, and I don't want them when it doesn't work for me. But uh, they did go on to say, we understand the Superior Court's concern that inter interpreting the statute other than as it 
as it did would allow any member of a community where an SVP could be released to create a private school for the sole purpose of precluding a proposed placement. But the courts must interpret and apply the law as the legislature enacted it. If the absence of a requirement that a recognized school be operated before community notice is given can obstruct proper application of the statute, it is for the legislature to remedy any perceived loophole, not the courts. That's what they said. Now, do you agree with that or don't you? I I don't agree with because then anybody anywhere can just go file to create a school and they have one or two little students, a little two little youngins showing up. And now, hey, we've got education going on, but now this person cannot go live there. So I'm going to have to pass on this because I need to cogitate on this for a little while. OK, well, that's my point of, on this program and the reason why I found this case appealing. I want our audience to cogitate as well and realize that when you say that you're something and you unequivocally and emphatically state that you're a textualist, and we've covered many textual determinations that most of you are not happy with, you might want to rethink what you think you are, because it may be that when it comes to certain issues, you've kind of misconstrued where you think you stand, because purposivism is good when it helps you win your case. That's what you cite to. You, you cite to legislative intent and the purpose of the statute. When the text doesn't get you where you're trying to go, you try your best to sway them that the purpose is what's important. That's just what we do in litigation. What I do find challenging, though, Larry, is we, we could craft the most perfect legislation as the society exists today and move forward. Like It's so hard to move legislation through as it is. And particularly at the federal level, I'm like, there's bajillions of things trying to get passed through. And in some period of time, our society will be different. I will, we could talk all day long about uh, the uh, section 230 of the, uh, for what essentially created the internet. And like, no one could imagine how the CP laws would have been when they made them. There was only Polaroid cameras and now you can transmit stuff all across the globe and the laws cannot keep up with how things are. So you almost have to have a judge step in and go, but that's not how it works today. Who was it? The goofball that said that the internet's a bunch of tubes. Like, I mean, it's just radically different. Just speaking about this one tiny little area of how things have evolved so much faster than legislators and the legislative body can handle changes. It's just, it's just insane to think that they would have known what we needed to be 20 years ago today. You're correct. And when they, they drafted this civil commitment law, no one was thinking about schooling the way that it's being used now, but they have, to, there have to be amendments done to the law because apparently this appellate level review has decided that we're going strictly by the text and the text just doesn't support what what you would like to be the outcome to do to be so you got to change the law well we'll we'll close out this section here with a little bit more and the debate the department of state hospitals offered several reasons why interpreting the statute to include schools operating from a home is problematic the department suggested there may be so many homeschools currently operating in california that applying the school proximity exclusion to all of them would make placement of svps who have a history of conduct with the chivins exceedingly difficult if not impossible why didn't that carry any weight do you think oh uh, very simple lack of evidence the court stated we know that the department offers no evidence to support that conclusion and concedes that it does not have data on that point 
On this record, there is no basis to conclude that home schools are so common throughout the state as to make the SVP predator placement impossible. I see. And then the court compared this case to the 2015 case of in versus uh, retailer in retailer. I there's somebody with the last name of in. No, that was just the name of the case, <laughs> um, which was a blanket blanket enforcement of residency restrictions as applied to PFR parolees in San Diego County. They noted that evidence established the restrictions excluded the parolees from 97% of rental properties and resulted in 34% of affected parolees being homeless. I know how adamant you are on evidence, and this would be an example of why. You are correct. I hate summary judgment. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Now, this case was different. Summary judgment was not an issue here, but I hate summary judgment because you need an evidentiary record. And you can't develop evidentiary records. Well, you can because parties can stipulate the facts, but it's difficult to to build the record that you need. And in that case, there was evidence. In this case, there wasn't. So what happens next? Possibly the California Supreme Court would just have to stay tuned. Dum da da dum. Next week on how long do you think it'll take for this to work its way through? Another year, year and a half. That's not horrible. I mean, how long does it t- did it take like the Michigan um, re-registry kind of stuff? That was like five years or something, wasn't it? Yeah, but we're well into this. This has already, this has already been pending. So it's only got California Supreme Court to go. And I don't know what the federal issue would be if you wanted to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. But possibly you could figure out a way to do a cert petition on it, depending on how the Supreme Court handles it they may decline to review it i don't think they have to review it i think that it, it's an option prerogative they want to grant review but i would not be surprised if a guy's been com- committed for prison or into a hospital for all these years decades i don't think he's going to say well i give up i would be very shocked so i think there'll probably be an attempt to go higher and i just the the, the inverse of this is that he is being released and I assume that they're going to essentially kick him out. And then he just, it seems like being homeless is worser. No, that's not going to happen in this case. Since he's in the custody of the state hospital, he's going to stay in the hospital setting until they can find a place to, to release him. So no, he won't be kicked out. And then I also would assume that in that kind of setting, it's not just normal prison kind of cost. This is a good chunk higher? Or do you think it's yes. less? I, I would imagine any type of treatment facility is going to, rerunning higher expenses because theoretically you have medical people there yeah and you're providing and some a, level a much treatment. lower yeah it's a much uh what higher or lower ratio whichever you want to look at that the the, the staff to um residence ratio would be much more favorable of a even split not even but closer not one to 70 like it is in georgia but maybe like one to 20 or something like that yeah security would be in prison your security staff would be the bulk of it but here in a hospital setting Security, of course, is important. You don't want the people roaming around the community, but security is supposed to be secondary to treatment. I mean, it's a part of it, sure. But I would say that there would yeah. be a lot more professionals there that are providing care, hopefully, anyway. Yeah. We'll probably get we feedback because we've got people who listen to us and read our transcripts that are in civil commitment, and we'll probably get some feedback. And that's one reason why I put this in here because we don't do enough on civil commitment. I hear you. All right, and then we will move along to, because we're somewhat getting short in time. 
And this uh, this article comes from NPR. God, you pointy, liberal-headed person, you. Uh, and this says, more states appear poised to expand voting access for people who were incarcerated. What is this article you put? It says state lawmakers. What is, like this article cites to Nicole Porter, who is the senior director of advocacy for the Sentencing Project, Project a nonprofit organization advocates for re- restoration of voting rights for people with prior felonies. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Sounds like a bunch of lefties anyway. Yes, indeed. It does. Uh uh, in Minnesota, and this is from the article, where Democrats last year gained full control of state government, more than 50,000 people previously convicted of a felony are expected to immediately regain their voting access following legislation that was sent to Governor Tim Walz's desk. The law would restore voting rights after someone is no longer in custody. Currently, former inmates in Minnesota need to complete all parts of their sentence, including parole and probation, before getting the access to the ballot. So this is going to put thousands of people in the potentially on the voter rolls and this is what those lefty states do andy they do it all the time so in addition to minnesota's bill new mexico lawmakers are debating a similar piece of legislation porter also flagged proposals in a number of states including nebraska oregon and illinois with the very strong prospects for 2023 in nebraska people with a prior conviction have to meet a two-year waiting period after their sentence before they can get their voting rights back. Proposed legislation would automatically restore those rights after a completed sentence, which could affect about 20,000 Nebraskans, which has got to be like 150% of the state. So, uh, actually, not quite. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, but give kudos, Nebraska is a conservative-leaning state. Uh, but some Democratic-led states are exploring going further, with lawmakers in both Oregon and Illinois offering proposals that would seek to, to join the uh, couple of states where that even incarcerated felons can uh, don't lose their right to vote. Now, that's really left us there. Um, and we don't, like, there is one particular party that's trying to, like, not have more people vote. Why one group of people want more people to vote? I'm in the camp of having more people vote because I think it would make us more representative of the peoples. But anywho, and while most almost 70 bills have been introduced throughout the country this year to restore voting rights to returning citizens, according to the left-leaning democracy docket, Porter said there are a few states considering rolling back the rights of the formerly incarcerated. Indeed, according to the article, it's not all good. Lawmakers in Republican-led Indiana are considering legislation that would strip voting rights of anyone convicted of voter fraud for 10 years after a conviction, regardless of whether they're even incarcerated. Currently, Indiana only disenfranchises individuals during their incarceration. Porter noted that they're also watching Florida closely. In 2018, voters approved a constitutional amendment ensuring restoration of voting rights to most people who would complete their prison sentence. However, Republican lawmakers, this is the article, not me, in that state passed a law regarding those returning citizens, requiring them to fulfill every part of their sentence, including paying fines or fees in order to regain access to the ballot, which gutted it because, as we talked about on one of the episodes, some people can't even find the paperwork that says how much their fines and fees were. You know, the, the, their convictions right. are so old. Let me ask you this, like in your personal opinion, uh, if you get if you get charged and convicted of something related to operating a motor vehicle, 
it seems reasonable that you would then have some kind of restrictions against operating said motor vehicle. And if you have a crime involving the children's, it seems reasonable that you would have some kind of restrictions tailored to that thing. So if you are convicted of voter fraud, it seems reasonable that you would have some kind of supervision or restriction against voting. That doesn't sound other than you seem to have a right to vote, but it doesn't seem that far fetched that someone convicted of voter fraud would have some kind of problems voting in the future. Well, they do. But what about 10 years having to set out an additional 10 years after you've completed paying your debt to society? What about that? Well, I you're no longer under well, supervision. Yeah. I, yeah. I just wondering what your opinion of how it would be narrowly tailored. I mean, like if a guy gets convicted of like Bernie Madoff, he probably shouldn't work in the finance industry after he is released, which I'm not saying he's going to be released. Well, I would look at that and maybe that, that we would have a prohibition against them working in the voter business. But Fair as far enough. as restoring the right to vote, they've paid their debts. Theoretically, we are restoring them to the wholesomeness of pre-conviction. So I would not disenfranchise them for an additional 10 years after they've paid their debt to society. Reasonable, reasonable. I'm with you. Very good. Anything else before we uh, kick the bucket, kick rocks, get out of here? Well, I suppose I don't have anything else other than we need to be at a thousand subscribers within one week on YouTube. Wow. That's a pretty heavy ask, Larry. But I bet if all of the people listening to this, if they got one or two friends, then we could get there. And what happens when we get to the magic thousand? Tell people what happens. Well, so, I mean, it's the only thing that I know that would happen is that we could like turn on the button that says monetize. And I don't think that, anything else happens. Would that be good or bad if we could it would start causing ads to pop up on our on our uh, YouTube channel, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. So that means we would make a fraction of a fraction of a penny for every impression of a of an ad. So we would probably make about $5 a month for these videos. Oh, is that all? I think so. I don't I mean I I really like for that number I just in my head, Larry, I think it's about 50 cents. It doesn't work this way, but just from what I've observed from people, depending on how much content they put out and all this stuff, it's about 50 cents per subscriber, so to speak. So if we have 50, if we have a, a thousand subscribers, how much would it, would that be? If it's 50 cents, we would make approximately $50 a month. That is just, like I said, I I've known or followed people and they, have 50,000 subscribers and I have an idea of how much they make and so forth. So, all right. Well, perhaps maybe it's not a big deal then if it's only going to bring $50 a month. I thought it was going to bring $5,000 a month. No, we would have to have like, you know, 50,000 subscribers or 25. We would have to have some substantial number of people. So, oh, and I need to, I need to apologize to one of our listeners over in the, in the joint regional correctional facility. They want to talk about, something that we didn't have time for, but we're going to get it back on the agenda. Ashley reached out to us, so we didn't have time this week, but we're going to talk about it. And uh, and also, very good. I, I also, I did a senior moment. I, I sent someone a renewal notice that has the expiration date is not till November. And I told them they had expired already. Well, they're probably freaking out. Now that's, Could that's be cussing funny. you out, Larry. That's that funny. funny. Well, very good, sir. I hope uh, I hope you're well. I hope you enjoy the rest of your Saturday evening and the rest of your weekend. And uh, your legislative session is hot and heavy now for the next couple of weeks. We've got two weeks to go, uh, noon, two weeks from today. 
Very good. Well, um, everybody, you can find all the show notes of everything that you need over at registrymatters.co, and that will take you everywhere you need to be. And it's best to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash registrymatters for as little as a buck a month and show your love and appreciation for the work that we're doing here. And without anything else, Larry, I bid you a farewell and I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Good evening. Good night. You've been listening to FYP.